giving is the best communication. Generosity spurs on generosity. And so we are in a series on stretching right now. It's a series on generosity. Uh, We are learning to be generous people through this series. I hope that it's been uh, inspiring to you. Next week, we're going to discuss an important attribute in learning to be generous. It's not probably what you think, but it is such an important attribute. If you want to be a generous person, you've got to be here next week to learn about this very important attribute on becoming generous. And then on June 5th, you do not want to miss this Sunday. If you are, uh, if you are a regular Restoration Church, if you just want to hear how, how Restoration Church is impacting and changing lives, then you do not want to miss June 5th. Come on out to Restoration. We are going to be having five different families share how uh, Restoration Church has impacted them. Uh, God, through Restoration Church, has impacted them and changed their life. And they're going to imagine for us what this community might look like if Restoration Church wasn't here. And so it's going to be a really interesting Sunday as we talk uh, and finish our series on generosity and on stretching. And then on June 5th, we are starting our summer series titled, These Aren't Your Children's Bible Stories. June 12th, what did I say? June 5th, June 12th. These aren't your children's Bible stories. And so we're going to be covering some of the classics as we walk our way through the summer, uh, talking about how, how our children's Bible stories really do not give us the clearest picture, maybe perhaps, on what these stories are actually saying. And we're going to look into the Word and see what God has to tell us through some of these classic stories. But today, we are plugging away at our series titled Stretching. It's a series on generosity, as I've already said. If you haven't been to church in a while, or this is your first time to church, we welcome here. We are excited that you are here. Uh, we hope that you continue to come back to church. Uh, but you may have this impression and this, uh, this idea has stuck into your head through somewhere that the church really just wants your money. That really, the church is really interested in your pocketbooks. And really, all the church wants is for you to open up your wallets and put your money in the offering plate each week. And that's why I stand up here, and that's why I try to convince you to do every single week. And that may be your impression. That may be how you understand the church to function. And I just want to reassure you that that is not true of me, and that is not true of Restoration Church. But you have come on a week where we are talking about money. Okay, it just so happens you come on a week we're talking about money. And uh, we have been for the last several weeks on top of that. And two of the reasons we're talking about money is because, first— It is one of the great idols of our world. Money is one of the great idols of our world. Placing value on objects as a means of currency has been done since the beginning of human civilization. Every culture has had some form of currency and some sort of economic structure. And so money is important, especially within our capitalistic society. Money really drives most everything that we do, unfortunately. And so money is very important. But Restoration Church is also heading into an exciting season. Uh, Many of you are aware that we are a a two-and-a-half-year-old church plant, and Grace Point up in Newtown planted us because they had uh, a desire to see uh, this region be infused with the gospel. And so they planted us, and in so doing, they raised $250,000 so that this church could begin, and this building could be renovated, and we'd have the means to begin this church. It's a little simplistic, this story, what I just told you, but the matter of fact is that the last two-and-a-half years, we have been dependent on Grace Point as a starting church. And on July 1st, we are being released from them, which is really exciting. You should give that an applause, and that's, that's all good. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, we are at a point now where we can be independent of Grace Point, and we are being released from Grace Point. And so what are we doing? We're, we're developing a constitution. We're raising a more robust leadership team, and we're incorporating you as members and as partners, and we also, partners, and we also have to establish a budget that is our own. And we have to meet that budget in order to continue to exist. And so, yes, we're being strategic in the timing of this conversation on money. But what I'm really interested in doing in us as a church body is creating generous people 
A generous culture is really what we're hoping to establish here, a generous culture. Not just people who give from time to time, but a generous culture. And so we are learning to be generous. And the reason we have to learn to be generous is because generosity is not natural. Generosity is not something we naturally do. So if you were with us last week, we talked about the need to have a plan when it comes to our financial structure. We need to have a plan, and in particular, in becoming generous people, we have to have a plan. If we were going to be a generous church, we have to have a plan to be a generous church. Everyone but Everybody has a plan. Here's the thing. Everybody has a plan, but the fact that most of us don't recognize that we have a plan, the fact that most of us don't even realize that we have a plan, probably means that our plan is a really bad plan. We, uh, we spend our money, and we just do these things. We don't really have a budget. We don't really know where our money's going, and so we spend money. We have a plan. If someone were to follow us around, they could write down exactly how we spend our money, and they could say, this is your plan. But it's a bad plan. It's a bad plan because it's not written down, and it's not very thought through. And because most people have no idea what their plan is, we're going to help you establish a plan. Most people's plan is this. Consume whatever comes my way, I'm going to pay my bills first, I'm going to pay off my loans, I'm going to do everything that I need to do with my uh, money first, consume whatever comes to me first, save if they can, so at the end of the month if there's anything left over, I'll put a little bit in savings so that my you know, son can go to college someday, and then if there's anything on top of that, or if my heartstring is pulled enough, then I'll give a little bit maybe to a cause, or, or if my son comes home with a, with a brochure for his walkathon at school for cystic fibrosis, then we'll write a check for $10 and put it in an envelope and send it to school with him. We're going to consume, we're going to save, and then we're going to give. And this is basically how most American households function. But then when something really pokes at our heart, you know, and, and, and our heartstrings are really pulled, and we're like, man, I wish I could give more to this cause. I wish I could do something to help this family in need. I wish I could do more to alleviate this pain in the world. You know what? We don't have the ability to because we haven't planned to. We can't give anything financially because we haven't made a plan to give anything financially. We live under this consumption assumption. It's the idea that if it's come to me, then it must be for me. And this consumption assumption not only cripples households financially, but it leaves us incapable and stagnant to do anything for God's kingdom in the world in regards to our finances. And so if you think becoming generous is a pipe dream because, you know, the struggle that you have just to pay your bills and everything is just, is just ridiculous and you struggle just to get by each month, then you have to pay attention this morning. If you think being generous is just an impossible idea because you have no idea how much your financial struggle is, then you have to pay attention this morning because I'm going to help you out in that. We need to rethink the way that we manage our money, and it begins with this core conviction that we are not owners of our possessions or our money. We are not owners, and that is the mindset that we must embrace. We are not owners of our possessions and our money. We are simply managers. We're managers. We're not owners. And the reason I know this is because if what we possess can be taken away, which, by the way, when you all die, it's going to be taken away, okay? So everything you have, every dollar you have saved up, it's all going to be taken away at some point. If it can be taken away, it was never really yours to begin with. You are only a manager. You are not an owner. And if we can wrap our mind around this and begin living as a manager as opposed to an owner, I guarantee you it will change everything. It'll change everything. If we can wrap our minds around this idea, it'll change everything. And so we need to flip our whole financial posture on its head. Instead of live, save, give, a cycle that is driven by fear and worry, we need to learn to give first, to save second, and to live on the rest. And so last week, each of you received a simple card, and my challenge was to ask you, if you were to make a plan that looked like this, what would it look like? 
write it down. That's all I'm asking you to do is write it down. I'm not asking you to give this to me and say, here's how much I'm contributing to Restoration Church next year. I'm simply asking you to say, if I had a plan to try to be a generous person, what would my plan be? There are cards available in the foyer in the back hallway, by the way. I would encourage you to write this down. Put this next to your bills. Put this next to your computer where you keep your, your books. Put it in your Bible and begin praying over how God is calling you to be a generous person. Put this somewhere that is accessible on a mirror or on your fridge so that you can learn to be generous, and generosity requires a plan. Now, here's the thing. Many of you might be thinking, Ross, you have no idea what my financial situation is like. You have no idea how hard it is to even get by each month. You have no idea how much money I make, (laughs) and therefore I can't give to Restoration Church. I I can't give to the causes of God in the world. You have no idea the struggle that I'm up against. You have no idea what my bills are like and how far I am in debt, and here is the thing. I get it. I get it. You're absolutely right. I have no idea what your financial situation is like. I have no idea what the struggle is like. But here is what I know regarding debt in particular. We live in a culture that convinces us that accruing debt, uh, in particular on a credit card, is actually a very important and responsible thing to do. uh, Because if you ever want to buy a house someday, if you ever want to buy a car someday, then you're going to need a proven track record on a credit card. You're going to have to show them that you're a responsible adult who can pay your bills on time, and, and, uh, and, and you're going to have a lower interest rate because of that. And so you have to build up your credit score. And so on, what happens on your 18th birthday? You'll come home from school with a mailbox full of credit card offers that you're pre-approved for a credit card, and not just one, but like five credit cards. And so you can go, and every single thing that you desire can be yours. All you simply need to do is hand over a little piece of plastic, and everything that you want in the world can be yours. You can go buy whatever you like with your $2,000 credit limit, and all you have to do is pay 18% interest on that $2,000 credit limit. And so credit card borrowing is among the very worst ways to borrow any significant money because what? It's so easy. All you have to do is hand over a piece of plastic, and you can have whatever you want, any desire you want, you can consume, and you can have. And so what? You're an 18-year-old making minimum wage, busing tables at a restaurant. But you have a new wardrobe, and you have a new pair of shoes. And you've charged you $2,000, but you're only able to make your monthly payments. And so if this keeps up where you only make your monthly payments, for the next 32 years of your life, you're going to pay off that $2,000. And in the process, you will have paid $10,000 for your new wardrobe that you don't even wear anymore. That's in some junk pile in the thrift store somewhere. And your new pair of shoes that you threw away 31 years ago. $10,000 is what you will end up paying for those things. And all of this because back in the 1950s, when the American economy was still recovering from the Second World World War, banks realized that if you wanted to improve the national economy, then you needed to get people spending. If you want to improve the economy, we'll make people spend. And so this was the same time that the suburbs began. Levittown actually was one of the very first suburbs that began in the 1950s. The suburban mentality also popped up, and that suburban mentality was kind of summarized in keeping up with the Joneses. And so the banks looked at the suburb, suburban mentality and the rise of the suburbs and the need for the economy to be improved after the World War, and they saw this as a perfect storm that people were discontent because they weren't like their neighbors, but they also needed the economy to improve. And so what do, credit, what do banks start doing? They begin to offer credit cards. Man, if you want people who think that they want to be like the Joneses, to be like the Joneses, give them the means to be like the Joneses and just pay 18% interest. It's all you need to do. And so the reason that we as a society make these spending choices is because we lack self-control, 
we are not content, we lack discipline, and this creates this perfect storm where we worry about our financial situation. We lack self-control, we're not content, we lack discipline, and we worry. And the reason we made these choices was because we put our trust in the lender of a bank rather than the God who could provide for us and give us worth and give us an identity. We put our trust in the lender rather than God who can give us a worth and an identity and provide for us. And by collapsing into debt, we have put ourselves under the authority of a corporation or a person, and we have actively enslaved ourselves to a corporation or to a person because we are in so much debt. The Proverbs tell us that the rich rule over the poor, and the borrower is slave to the lender. And I bet you there are a lot of people in this room who feel this. That you feel the burden of the financial insecurity, and you feel the burden of the struggle of having so much debt, and you don't want to open up your mailboxes every day because you're wondering what card is going to come in the mail and what uh, debt collector is going to be knocking on your door next. You feel the burden, you feel the weight, you feel the pressure. And if the situation keeps up, it's going to keep you up at night because you worry and you worry and you worry. And my challenge before this hopeful, encouraging part of this message is if you do not have enough money to pay off your credit card each and every month, then get rid of that credit card and get it as far away from you can, cut up in a trash can somewhere. Begin there. Make that the beginning of your plan. And if you're thinking, that's just not possible, Ross, I need that credit card to survive each month. I need to pay my bills on that credit card, or I'm not going to be able to get gas in my car without that credit card. Then I'm thinking that you're probably not living within your means. And you're not content, and you're lacking self-control, and you're lacking discipline, and you need to make a plan. And so in order to climb out of the depth of our debt pool is that we need to make a plan. And uh, for those of you who are familiar with Financial Peace University, one of the great plans of getting out of debt is to snowball all of your debt. So begin paying off the lowest amount that you owe. Put all of your resources into that as much as you can. Pay that lowest amount off as fast as you can. When that is paid off, roll all of that money that you're investing into that one debt and roll it into the next smallest one. It may take years and years to do this, but in the end, you will find yourself out of debt if you can do this, and you can find the discipline and the self-control to do it and the contentment to begin living within your means. So you need to make a plan. And then you need to begin seeing yourself as a manager, not an owner. Okay, You need to work on that mentality change and that heart change. You are a manager, not an owner. And then you need to surround yourself with some accountability because it's really hard to do this on our own, right? It's really hard just to... find the motivation and the self-control and the discipline to do it, but if you can find some accountability, people to be speaking into your life and watching you and helping you make your books and manage your finances, it'll help a lot. And here is where the hopeful and encouraging and somewhat odd, perhaps, fourth part of the plan comes in. You need to begin giving. You need to begin giving. And here's why I say that. The reason why we need to begin giving, even if it is a very small amount, even if it seems impossible, is because you need to learn to stare your financial situation in the face and say, you are not my God. You are not my ruler. You do not control me, and I am not enslaved to this financial mentality any longer, this consumption assumption any longer, but I believe and I trust in a God who will provide for my needs. You need to start giving, and you need to start putting your money where your mouth is. You see, we've trusted in our riches or the lack thereof for so long that it's brought us to this place of despair, 
Maybe some of you guys can resonate with that. It's brought you to this place of despair. And so what is so fascinating about being in despair is that we finally get to this point where we cry out to God, God, I do not have any resource. I don't have any money. I need your help. God, where are you? God, will you just send some money my way? Will you just help me in this situation? God, just, just put something in my path that's going to help me get through this situation. Anything, God, something, please, God, show up. Do something. Help in some way. And if that is the case, that one day we're going to get to a point where we're going to cry out and we're going to finally trust God with our finances. That's really what we're doing, right? When you cry out, God, I'm going to finally trust you to take care of my finances. Why wait? Why wait to that day when you've hit rock bottom? Why not just do it today? Why not just do it today? Why not begin trusting God with your resources right now? Why not partner with God with your finances right now? Because the truth is, God is looking for faithful stewards of whom he can entrust vast portions of his kingdom to. Do you guys want to be one of those stewards? Do you guys want to be one of those managers that God is just going to lavish his generous spirit on and that you can give it all away then and participate in what he's doing in the world? He wants managers to handle his wealth. And if you begin managing the wealth that he has given you, remember that we are simply managers. We're not owners. You've got to understand the mentality. It's one of the basic principles of all I've been saying these last like five weeks. Whether you are free from debt or in a huge mountain of debt, if you begin managing God's wealth and doing so faithfully, God will entrust you with more. God will entrust you with more. And I don't mean that if you give God a dollar, he's going to give you ten. Believe me, there are plenty of pastors in our nation who have built empires preaching that. Hey, give me a dollar, man. It's just a little seed money. And I, you know what? God's going to give you 10 in return. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not a health and wealth gospel preacher. What I mean is that when your heart and your actions align for the promotion and the advancement of God's kingdom, he will entrust you with greater wealth so that you can do even more for his kingdom. It's not for your own riches. It's not for your own mansion. It's not for your own stack of money. It's for God's kingdom. And let me tell you why I think this. In Paul's second letter to the Christians in Corinth, he commands them, he commends them for their generosity to the Christians, the other Christians in another city. Uh, they're, they're reaching out to them. They're, they're giving vast amounts of wealth to other Christians who are poor in other cities. But sensing the natural tension between generosity and fear, which we all have, the tension between generosity and fear, Paul took the opportunity to bolster, bolster their confidence by reminding them of their new positions as managers in God's kingdom. And in the process, he gives all of us invaluable insight into this new relationship between us and God and God and our money and our needs and the God who can provide and, and the world's needs and the God who can provide and the world's needs and our resources. And so this passage is crucial to understanding God's response and giving. If you have your scripture with you, I'd encourage you to open up to 2 Corinthians. It's about three-fourths of the way through your scripture, maybe a little beyond that even. It's towards the end of your Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, starting at verse 6. Otherwise, the words are on the screen. Paul wrote this. He said this, Remember, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. And so you need to know this is a principle that Paul is stating here. This is a principle, the law of the harvest that applies to our giving. And so Paul is basically saying that those who are generous will receive something back in return for their generosity, for participating in God's kingdom work. And not only that, but there is a direct correlation between how much we give and how much we will receive in turn. The more you sow, the more you will reap. If you give like you are supposed to, God will give you even more, Paul is saying. And again, to convince you that I'm not a health and wealth gospel preacher, Paul isn't saying, give me a dollar and I'll give you ten. Or God will give you ten in return. 
I'm not saying that you need to give me your seed money and God will make you rich. That's not what Paul is saying here. Paul isn't promoting any individual pocketbook, but rather the kingdom of God, and this makes all the difference. This is the change in thinking. God, Paul is promoting the kingdom of God and its advancement through our resources. Paul isn't trying to get people's money. He's not trying to get rich. He was simply explaining how God wants faithful men and women to act as conduits, as pathways, as, as tunnels for God to pour his resources through onto the rest of the world. This isn't personal gain. This is kingdom progress. Not personal gain, kingdom progress. Not personal gain, kingdom progress. And so this is hopeful and encouraging, especially to you reluctant givers. You people who are so uh, established in your fear that you're like, there's no way I could ever give any money. There's no way I could ever be generous. This is really, really good news. And this is why we need to learn to give if we don't feel like we are able to. If we feel like we'll never get out of the debt or the pit that we're in, this is why we need to start giving. For many of us, when we give something away, it feels like a loss. Feels like we've lost something. You know, I once had something and now I gave it away and now I don't have it anymore. I once had $100, now I gave it away and I don't have it anymore. But Paul says that giving to God's work is not giving something away, it's actually an investment. It's not a loss, it's an investment. Think of a farmer. You know, when he sows, he sows his seed. He doesn't lose his seed, he actually gains a crop. And if he doesn't sow his seed, then he's not going to have a crop. What rational farmer would say, you know, I'm afraid to sow my seed because when I, I won't have any seed anymore. What will I do if I need that seed? I don't want to sow my seed because I won't have my seed. Every farmer knows that if he wants a crop, he's got to first sow his seed, right? That's just how it works. It's the nature of it all. It doesn't benefit him to stuff his pockets full of seed. Neither does it do him any good to say, oh God, please give me a crop. I, I, I'm not sure I'm ready to sow any seed, but God, I, I'm trusting that you're going to provide for me. I'm trusting that you're going to get involved, but I'm not going to sow my seed because I'm going to hold on to it just in case. The wisest thing that we can do with our money is beginning to sow it into God's kingdom. The wisest thing you can do with your money is begin sowing it into God's kingdom to let God get involved in your finances. And so how do we do that? Well, Paul continues. He says, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Because it involves calculations and mathematics, there's always this chance that giving and being generous is going to become robotic. And it's not going to be from the heart. It's not going to be full of joy. It's going to feel more like a burden. And somehow Paul tied cheerfulness in with having a plan. Each of you should do what you have decided, what you have planned to do in your heart. And so how many times have, you know, we've been asked for money and we're like, oh man, I don't want to give any money away. This kid is at my door again, knocking on my door. I don't want to give any more money away. I gave him $20 last week. I don't want to keep giving this kid money. And so we're reluctant. And we're doing it under compulsion because we have all these things coming at us. We're like, oh, I guess I'm a good Christian, so I better give some money to this cause. We do it reluctantly and we, and we do it all of compulsion instead of being cheerful. Because God doesn't want us to give reluctantly. He doesn't want us to give compulsively. He wants us to give because we have planned to give and to give so cheerfully because we are grateful and brokenhearted over the situation we are financing. And so God wants us to go home. He wants us to look at the wealth that he has entrusted in us. Remember that we are managers, not owners. He has entrusted his wealth to us. He wants us to determine in our heart how much we are going to sow into his kingdom 
And he wants us to consider thoughtfully our current circumstances and our life and our potential and our finances. And he wants us to get our families involved. And he wants us to begin praying over our finances. And he wants us to get involved and to make a plan with how are we to sow into his kingdom. And then, whether good times or bad, whether in good times or bad, we stick faithfully to the plan that God has given us. Because he is going to harvest a crop that we sow. It's a promise that God of all, the God of all earthly treasures wants to involve you and me in distributing his wealth to the world. And we are to sow into God's kingdom so that he can raise up a crop for us. And so God will stabilize you and God will provide all you need so that you are an agent of stabilizing and providing others in this world with all they need. Paul says this, And God is able to bless you abundantly. So that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. My friends, God's going to take care of you, in other words. If you sow into his kingdom, God will take care of you. You don't have to fear. You don't have to live in the worry or the fear or the stress that comes with finances doing it the consumption assumption way. God's going to take care of you. He's going to feed you and clothe you and provide for you so that you can continue to do his work. He doesn't want starving uh, participants. He doesn't want an army who's malnourished. He doesn't want his workers to not be equipped to do the work. And so he is going to provide all of our needs as it is written. They have freely scattered their gifts to the poor, and their righteousness endures forever. They freely give without expectation, without hesitation, without reluctancy. They give, and they are happy. And that is the promise Jesus makes. If you give, if you learn to be generous and order your whole life around generosity, you will be happy. You see, there's a direct connection between righteousness, which is just a fancy word for saying right relationship or, or uh, the way that God had intended us to live rightly or the way that we were created to be. There's a direct correlation between that and investing in God's interests. When we invest in God's interests, when we partner with him on mission, when we do what God has called us to do, then we are doing what we are supposed to do as people. And not only this, but Paul continues. He says, Now he who supplies seed to the sower... And bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. So not only will investing our resources in God's plans increase his trust in our stewardship and therefore our storehouses, as Paul said, God will actually increase your storehouse, but you will also glean a harvest of righteousness. You will, in other words, become happy. You will live rightly. You will live the way that you were intended to live as people upon this earth. And so the more you give and the more you stretch and the more that you love, the more human you are going to become. You will be enriched, in other words, in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. So when we are faithful to give generously, We do a good service to God, and as a result, he will come back to us for more. He will increase our storehouses so that we can continue to give more. And so when he wants to distribute wealth again in the future, he's going to look at his faithful stewards, those who have managed his money wisely, his resources wisely, and he's going to come and say, hey, Ross and Emily, you guys were a faithful steward of my resources. I'm going to give you more so that you can be greater stewards of my resources upon the world. God wants, us to give, God wants to give to you so that you can do his work. And so here's the thing. If you're generous, God will make you rich. And I don't mean when I say rich, he's not going to like increase your wealth to the point where you can have this lavish mansion. 
and a huge stockpile of money. He's going to make you rich. He's going to make you content. He's going to make you full of joy so that you can be even more generous. He's going to give to you so that you can give. And he's going to give you more so that you can give more. And he's going to give you even more so that you can give even more. It's not for your own benefit. It is for the glory of his kingdom. But he wants you investing in his kingdom first. We need to invest in his kingdom first, not so that we can get what we need, but because we desire to generously share his work. You know, I think a very practical example of this is uh, the story of Emily and I. So I want to share you with you the story of the last maybe five, six, seven, eight years of our life and how we have learned to put this kind of thing in practice and how God has showed up in the midst of it. You see, when we were first married, neither one of us had a plan to be generous. Neither one of us thought, hey, let's make a plan to be generous. We didn't, we didn't bring that into our marriage. It wasn't something we were doing individually, and it wasn't something then we were going to do corporately as a married couple. We would give to the church, but we would give our leftovers. And so if we had an extra $50 at the end of the month, we'd throw it in the offering plate at church. If we had a little more than that, we'd do that. If we had less, we'd even do less. But we'd give to the church our leftovers. And so $50 here and there if we had it. But this was only after we ate out all the times that we wanted to that month. You know, as long as we had our fill at all of our favorite restaurants for the month, then we could give a little bit to the church. As, as long as we, you know, did all the entertainment and saw all the movies we wanted to that month, as long as we, uh, you know, had our cable television still and, and our internet connection, then we would give. We moved into a beautiful home in Minnesota, and we realized that we had an entire level of our house that was basically unoccupied. Entire level had a bathroom and a room uh, with access to the outside. It was, uh, it was a simple living, but we recognized that uh, we could probably use this to benefit people in our community and the people in our life. And so God was planting seeds of generosity in us. You have this space. Begin to use it generously. Begin to use it in a way that's going to honor me and glorify me. I want to entrust you with this space. How are you going to use it? And so we decided that we would open up our space free of rent to five different people throughout the course of five years. And not only that, but we paid for their electricity and we paid for their water. We paid for their heat so that they could find a little bit of financial stability underneath them. These are people who are, who are in a rough spot, and we thought, hey, if they could save $1,500 a month because we are offering this space free to them, it's going to help them out a lot over the course of a year. That's a lot of money they could save up and put towards paying off debt or being generous with it themselves. And then we had Ethan, and our heart began to break for children because that happens when you have children of your own. You recognize that there are a lot of people in our world who don't have food and clothing and shelter or love for that, for that um for that age in particular, and so we really, uh, our hearts began to break over infants who were malnourished within our world. And so eight years ago, we sponsored our first child through Compassion International. And we've had that child for eight years. His name is Mithun. He lives in India. For eight years, we sponsored him because our heart broke, and we wanted to release this child from poverty in Jesus' name. And so our grip on our money began to loosen a little bit. It wasn't a lot, right? We still weren't giving a ton to the, the church, $50 here and there when we had it, but we sponsored a child through compassion, and, and we opened up our house to people to live free of charge within our space. Our hearts were beginning to change. Our mentality was beginning to change. We weren't, manager, we weren't owners of our money. We were managers of our money. And see, we were being primed for something bigger, though. You know, God, God was putting these seeds in us, and we were being primed for something bigger. So about five years ago, through a series of messages that we heard at, at a variety of churches and other experiences we had, we felt God was telling us to take the next step. And so we sat down, we looked at our budget, and we asked ourselves, what would it look like if we began giving 10% 
of our income away to the church. We went from like, you know, giving $50 away every month to, to giving 10% of our resources off the top. God was calling us. He was prompting us to begin doing this. What would it look like? What plan would we have to put in place if we were actually to begin to do this? Would we have to make some lifestyle changes? Yeah. Would we have to cut out some things? Absolutely. But God was calling us to do this. He was prompting in us, what would the plan look like? Would we be able to give 10%? And we jumped from like giving, like I said, $50 away to giving 10% away to the local church. But we made a plan to do it. We made a plan, an intentional premeditated plan to do that. And so the first check we would write each month would be to our local church. And so in addition to that, Luke was born around that same time, and we took on another compassion child. And around this time, Emily and I began thinking and praying of starting a church ourselves. Uh, Over time, uh, that path led us here to start Restoration Church. We began praying and thinking God was putting on our heart this, uh, this call to plant a church. And there were people telling us that we were crazy to try and sell our house in the market that uh, Minnesota was in at that time, and moving across country was an absurd idea, and there were days when we agreed with them. There were days when it was really hard, and we were like, what the heck are we doing? We can't be doing this. This is absurd. There were days we agreed with them, but this was a calling from God, and we knew that if God was calling us to us, then God was going to provide the way for us to do this. And so literally three minutes after I got off the phone with the pastor of Grace Point, we were making this plan. We were like, okay, you know, we're going to put the, these motions in place. We're going to try to, to find renters for our house, and we're going to put motions in place and wheels in place that, so that we can begin to make the transition from Minnesota all the way out east to plant a church. Literally three minutes after I got off the phone uh, with uh, the pastor at Grace Point, a former student at the college I worked at, Bethel, that Emily had mentioned, a young woman I hadn't talked to in like over a year at this point. She called me, and she was like, hey, Ross, I really like your community, your neighborhood. I really love your neighborhood. Are there any houses for rent in your neighborhood? And I'm like, are you kidding me? This is the God who provides. Three minutes after I got off the phone saying, I don't know how, what we're going to do with our house. I don't know how we're going to do this. God is making a way for us to go forth. So here, she and her three friends moved into our home, as our very first renters. And we were investing in God's kingdom. God was investing in us. We were investing in God's kingdom. God is investing in us. And so Emily and I continued to give faithfully towards God's work. The top portion off of everything that came our way, whether it be through paychecks or tax returns or whatever other funds that we received, we would give immediately the first 10% to the local church. And three years ago, when those girls moved out, we were told that the rental market wasn't great out in Minnesota. We were here trying to do this whole rental thing across country. And that we were to find new renters uh, within the 30 days notice we received would be exceptionally hard to do. It was going to be really hard to do, and we'd uh, most likely have to cover at least one month mortgage, if not several months mortgage, um, before the transition of renter to renter. And so we kept giving faithfully during this, because it would have been really easy to say, oh my goodness, if we have to save up a couple mortgages, uh, rents, uh, we have a month's worth of mortgages, then, then maybe we've got to stop giving to the church. Maybe we can put that money just aside for just for a couple months so that we can pay our mortgages when they come our way. But we kept giving faithfully because God was calling us to give faithfully and to be generous towards his church. And within two weeks of them telling us that they were gone, we got a new renter who signed a three-year lease. In a, in a situation where everyone said, you're not going to find a renter for several months, we found a renter within two weeks, and they signed a three-year lease. And just two weeks ago, when those renters' um, lease was finished, and they decided that they were going to purchase a house on their own in a different uh, community, our realtors walked into our house in Minnesota, and they said that it hadn't really been taken care of. We hadn't been there in three years. We had no idea what kind of parties they were throwing in this place. We had no idea what kind of—they had a family. You're right. Okay. They, uh, they had young kids, but hey— 
wear and tear. Uh, oh, okay, we can debate that later. But um, <laughs> we are told the house was not in good shape, that they hadn't really taken care of it all that well, and the house was not in good shape. And uh, unless we wanted to wait, and this is what the, our realtors were suggesting, wait until your renters move out, um, because then you can go in and get it professionally cleaned, and you can, um, and you can maybe even get new carpet in the house and repaint every single wall and uh, spend the thousands of dollars it would take to do all that. Wait till, they, wait till they move out, and then we can get it like you know looking brand new, and then we can stage it a little bit so that you can actually sell it, because in this market, uh, you're going to have a really hard time selling this house as it is. And Emily and I were like, oh my goodness, if that's going to take a couple months, then where are we going to come up with the money for the mortgage payment that we need? And so what do we do? We keep giving faithfully because God called us to give faithfully. We keep giving faithfully because God called us to give faithfully. And every time we doubted that, God would remind us of who he was. Every time we doubted that, God would remind us of who he was. We kept giving first to God's interests, and literally four days after our renters moved out, four days after our renters moved out, we closed on our house in Minnesota. There was a, there was a family in Minnesota that lowballed us, and we said, we're not. We're not going to take any more. We're not going to lose money on this house. And they came back and said, okay, we'll pay whatever you want. We're like, what? Our realtors, a realtor called me that day, and he said, were your elders praying for this? And I said, yeah, everyone's praying for this, right? Because God is faithful to provide for our needs. You invest in God's interest, God will invest in you. You invest in God's interest, God will invest in you. And every time we wondered about our finances, and if we should give less than 10% to the church or the Compassion Children or, or funding friends who are missionaries throughout the world, Emily would get a, a call that there was another family in the area that wanted to you know, have their three kids play, uh, take piano lessons. Or, or there was a call that she would uh, get, get more people um, to be in interested in her piano lessons, or I would get a call that I, somebody wanted me to come and speak at their summer camp or a, or a corporate retreat or something. And, and all of a sudden, every time we were wondering, God, I don't know if we can afford to give to your church, God would say, I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to put these things in place so that you can continue to give. And our heart kept break, it keeps breaking, and uh, we keep looking for new things to invest in. And Emily and I both worked at a university, and so we saw the, the brokenness and the ruin that, uh, that college students were in. It was because they had really horrible you know, junior high and high school experiences, a lot of them. And so we really uh, felt for hurting youth in our area. And so when Emily's brother, Josh Ritter, said, hey, I want to come and I want to start a, a ministry for hurting youth in your church, we're like, we're going to invest in that because our heart breaks for that. And so you guys might know that Treehouse functions here Sunday and Wednesday night because Josh has this heart for breaking youth, and we do too. And so we fund, uh, as a portion of our monthly income, Treehouse. And if you guys' heart breaks over youth in our area, then fund Treehouse because they're doing a great work to help youth come to know Jesus Christ. Get on board with those things that break your heart. We do, when we did our compassion campaign just a couple weeks ago, we decided that we would give, we would sponsor another child because we had Sophie now, and so we had three child. We want to sponsor three children. Our hearts keep breaking over these things, and so we keep investing in different things. You see, Emily and I began with our leftovers. We began with our leftovers, and maybe that's where you are right now. You begin with your leftovers. We, we gave to God causes what we had left over. We didn't feel like we were doing anything significant with it. But God wanted to pull us into a faithful management so he could continue to increase our wealth so that we could continue to resource his interests in the world. And over the years, as God has increased our wealth, we have increased our giving. And so I mentioned this a couple times, and I don't say this to boast, but, but Emily and I give about 17% off the top of everything we, we make each month. 
And we started with our leftovers. It's not like we did that immediately. We started in a growing partnership with God. And as he has increased our wealth, we want to continue to increase what we give away. And I would encourage you guys that this is the promise that if you are generous, God will make you rich. If you are generous, God will make you rich so that you can be even more generous. And if God is calling you and prompting your heart this morning to begin a partnership with him and investing in his kingdom, then begin with a little and go home and make a plan and ask yourself, God, if you were calling me into a generous relationship, then what would that generosity look like? What would it look like? Let me pray for you guys. Heavenly Father, I thank you for who you are calling us to be. I thank you for what you're doing in our life and in the life of this church. I pray, Father, that as we continue to trust more and more in you, Father, the God who will provide, that we would say, I'm not going to trust in riches. I'm not going to trust in the resources of this world any longer, but I'm going to trust in you, Father, because you are a good provider. Father, that you would lavish your goodness upon us. And that as our wealth increases and we have this ability then to, to climb out of debt because we made a plan to do so and we've shifted our mentality from owners to managers and we've kept ourselves accountable, Father, and we've begun to give and invest into your kingdom, that you would then invest into us. And you would increase our wealth so that we can give more and more and more away. Not that we can have the biggest house on the block, not that we can drive the fanciest cars, not so that we can have this huge bank account, but that so we can be generous in the world to relieve the world of its brokenness. Do it in us, Father, we do ask and we pray in your name. Amen.